AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, I of Newt, Tongue of Toad, well more like excretion of toad, we're talking about the natural poisonous witch's brews of the animal kingdom. From trippy toads to petrifying platypuses, we're talking about animals who Snow White might want to keep some distance from. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, should we talk about the birds, bees, and snakes, given that snake bites can reverse puberty? Joining me today is author of the John Dies at the End series and the new book, Zoe is Too Drunk for This Dystopia, Jason Pargin. Welcome! Very eager to talk about this because my understanding of all of nature prior to today was that everything on Earth exists for humans to eat. Mm. Like, that's why the planet is here. It is a buffet So finding out that some of these things can really mess you up in ways that seem like a witch's curse uh, is very shocking. I mean, look, you still can eat it, technically. What happens after is just, you know, that's up to you. I just feel like it's irresponsible on the animal's part. Right. Because it's like, what's what's the point of that? Uh, You are you're you're walking food. You you surely realize this. It's as if they don't want us to eat them, which can't be true. I don't understand, but we, we'll get into it because they may have ulterior motives. But <laughs> ultimately, I think it's just something. It's a misunderstanding. Well, Jason, I'm sure you've heard of psychedelic toads. In fact, I'm 100% sure because you were the one who was interested in talking about them today. Yeah, I only know it as a pop culture phenomenon. It's something that you constantly hear. You know, you see it in movies or whatever, where they will lick a toad in the desert. I think there's a Simpsons episode where it happens. And I have always assumed that that is not strictly true, that you could not just literally pick it up, 
like it's back and then suddenly start tripping. I assumed it's one of those things that just pervaded into pop culture, but it's more real than what I thought, but I've never known why such a creature exists or how we found out such a creature exists. Yeah, so it is a mixture of truths and half-truths, but mostly it is as weird as pop culture would make it sound. Um, Of course, I'm going to start this by saying um, don't lick toads. Uh, Even if you think you'll get high, they're much more likely to make you sick. Um, and also it's mean to the toad. Did you get that toad's consent? I don't think so. Um, so, uh, that being said, it is true that psychedelic toad toxin is a real thing. Um, and human beings do ingest it recreationally. Uh, typically though, it is not through licking the toad, but it goes through a whole process before being ingested. Uh, usually it's smoked. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail about how it's made, partially because I don't know and partially because I don't want the DEA on my butt. Uh, But yes, uh, suffice it to say that people can and do have psychedelic experiences with uh, toad toxin, um, and it's usually processed before they ingest it. And it's not the best thing for the toad to do. So it's not a victimless uh, crime. Generally, if you've been rolled up and smoked, you're probably not still alive, regardless of (laughs) what kind of a life form life form you are. I mean, it's I don't think they make just a fat dube out of the toad. They generally will scrape the toxin off the toad. It doesn't have to kill the toad, but it's not a good situation. Like you're get, the toad's basically getting milked, getting scraped, and that is not not a great situation for the toad. In fact, there are like poachers who try to get these toads. There's also people who try to farm these toads, and farming is actually quite bad for toads because there are a lot of fungal infections that really threaten toad populations and. Uh, when you have a bunch of toads kind of in a concentrated area on some kind of toad farm, you greatly increase the chance of the this fungal infection spreading, and then it could potentially spread to wild populations. So it's not exactly a sustainable drug, toad uh, psychedelic toxin, um, but that doesn't stop people from necessarily trying to do it. Yeah, by the way, there could be a whole separate episode on the fact that we humans tend to assume that basically anything can be farmed yeah, uh, big controversy over octopus farming because it's a delicacy, and they're like, "Well, let's just farm them." Uh, it's like these are intelligent creatures. Uh, not everything has been domesticated over tens of thousands of years to be suitable to be herded and bred or whatever on mass. So, yeah, it's not just these toads. There's lots of creatures that don't do well because that is very unnatural in terms of environment for them. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. Like there, you can't just farm. An exotic animal and expect that to turn out well for either the animal or for you. The farm animals that we have right now, I mean, of course, farming is not always great even for them, but they have been selected over many thousands of years for uh, domestication. So yeah, that that's quite a bit of a different situation. You can't 
just saddle up a toad and expect it to be like a cow or something where you can go and milk the toads every morning. But uh, toads do produce a toxin and it's not created to make us get high. It is actually there to protect them from predators. So there are lots of toads and frog species as well that produce toxins. Uh, and that toxin uh, is truly intended to ward off predators. So uh, the toad will ooze toxin when it feels threatened, usually from uh, a few glands on its body. And predators will either get sick or disgusted and will either stop trying to eat the toad and release it or become sick after eating the toad, uh, learning a very painful lesson and in some cases potentially lethal lesson that uh, this toad is not good to eat. I find this absolutely fascinating because it is something I had literally never thought of before that you have a defense that doesn't necessarily save that individual toad. Because as you can imagine, you've seen predators eat. A lot of them do not gingerly test the food before they, a lot of them just snap it up and swallow it. And so it would be them getting sick and then learning not to eat other similar toads. In other words, the defense is not necessarily to save that toad. It's a collective defense. Like, hey, don't, I have sacrificed myself to teach you not to eat the other toads like me, which of course the toad does not have that thought or any thought, but the way that a defense evolved in that manner, I think is really interesting. I think it's kind of inspirational because it's like, well, sometimes in your own life, uh, you may run into a disaster, but this is the world using you as an example to teach other people. <laughs> Right. I mean, it is. So there are uh, animals, including these toads. The, the toads can sometimes survive this. And in fact, sometimes like the the predator will just get a whiff of this toxin, like kind of get it on their nose or or on their mouth and lips and realize something's off. Uh, some toads uh, are able to spray it a little bit so that it's definitely a warning to the predator to uh, back off. But there are animals, certainly, where it is rare for them, despite their toxin, to survive a predator encounter, including butterflies. So butterflies, there are a lot of butterfly species, like monarchs, who are toxic. They are not good to eat. And they do not necessarily survive if a bird tries it. Like, they're very delicate creatures. The bird, if it even does spit it out, that butterfly is probably not going to make it. However you still see this protective effect of butterfly, like butterflies like monarchs uh, having this warning coloration called apisemitism, which deters predators like birds from eating them, despite the fact it doesn't necessarily prevent that first individual that gets eaten by a bird. So it's not an altruistic thing, right? Like it's not somehow these butterflies having a collective consciousness of we are going to save future butterflies so because like you can imagine like say you have a butterfly who develops this trait and it doesn't help itself at all it gets eaten well those genes don't get passed on so how 
does this ball even get rolling in the first place? You need like a critical mass of the butterfly population who have this mutation or development that actually survive. And so one of the theories is that the same adaptation of the bright colors and the toxicity also helps it survive in other ways. So the bright coloration, the the toxicity um, may make them more viable to be able to produce offspring even beyond just being preyed upon. So for instance, that bright coloration makes it more noticeable to the opposite sex and allows it more mating opportunities. And maybe the toxin helps protect it from parasites. And so those things already make it more likely to pass on its genes. And then you get this added benefit of predators learning, hey, these really bright butterflies are nasty and they give me a tummy ache. So you have this kind of two-pronged thing where it evolve, enough of them evolve this characteristic, perhaps for unrelated reasons, but then it also has this population protective effect of uh, these predators learning the really bright monarchy butterflies are disgusting. They make me puke. So uh, it is really interesting. In fact, there are butterfly species who are not toxic, who have uh, adapted to take advantage of this aposematic protection that the toxic species have. So you'll have a mimic who is not toxic, could be eaten, you know, delicious butterfly, and then it copies the look of a toxic butterfly. This is called Batesian mimicry. Uh, so then the tasty butterfly benefits from that protection because a bird looks at it and says, this looks like one of the yucky butterflies. I'm not going to eat it. The really interesting thing is if these mimics are too numerous, it actually dilutes the effect efficacy of the protective coloration because then birds learn like, actually, when I eat these really bright butterflies, uh, they, they're fine. I, I'm, I'm okay. It's like, you know, you have enough of the false signal to bury the real signal. So you have these population dynamics where the mimics have to be in low enough numbers in order for the bait, the, for the aposematic coloration to actually benefit them. So you see this, like these population dynamics where the, if the mimic population gets too many, you have this like crash in the population and then a rise in the population of the toxic butterflies. It's real. It's very interesting mathematically, which we won't talk about the math because I cannot. <laughs> no, but I love this because it's such a great demonstration of how this is all a machine. So, for example, if you have coloration that is supposed to signal to predators, or I keep using terminology like it's designed to or supposed to, as if the butterflies playing this. I, of course, know that's not how this works. It's, it's just a, so hard to get away from that language because yeah. this is how human beings work. So, like, we have intention, yes. we have des we design things, and so we use that kind of language when we're talking about things that don't are, have that, but it's really hard. Even if we understand that's not the case, it's hard to not use that language. You and I are primates and tool users. So right. we want to see things through the lens of this is a tool they designed because that's how we, we see the world. That's our evolution. But for example, if you have a specific predator, say a bird, 
your coloration only works in a range of colors that that bird's eyes can see. It does you no good if that, so your color is somewhat, is partly dictated by the design of the eyes of the birds that are eating you. And whether or not this mimicry works gets back to the, whatever, the rudimentary psychology or decision-making of the bird. I know birds do not have psychology, but they do have a decision-making process in terms of in terms of the risk reward, like, am I going to risk if I know that only one out of 50 of these is poisonous? And it's like, no, fine, I'll, I'll happily risk that. But every animal has different concept of risk. That is something else that evolves. You know, the, the scarcity of food changes that equation. Mm-hmm. So the, the way the decision making, the eyes, the sense organs of your enemies dictate what you look like and how you, you act. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these these relationships between animals can be very close, regardless of whether it is, uh, you know, symbiotic uh, in sort of a mutualism where it's mutually beneficial or symbiotic in predator-prey relationships. You know, you can have a very close relationship with uh, between two animals where they are constantly trying to either evade or kill each other, but they still have this very intimate connection because they are shaping each other's evolution. And in fact, they can have an, like, if you know, people think, well, if you remove a predator, that's really good for the prey population because they never have, they don't have to contend with that predator. Well, in fact, sometimes if you remove a predator, the prey population uh, is in danger because they become too numerous. They compete for more resources. They spread disease. So yeah, these relationships relationships are very fascinating and you you really there is no no animal is an island. Everyone is sort of, you know, pushing and sque- squeezing on the other through evolutionary history and shaping what the other animal looks like, what it does, everything about it. I mean, ourselves included. Now that we've talked a little bit about the background behind why animals have these toxins, let's talk about one of the most famous psychedelic toads the Sonoran Desert Toad. It is found in southwestern United States and northwestern Mexico. It is a brownish-green warty toad that lives in areas that go through wet and dry seasons. And actually, during the dry season, the toad lives in burrows underground. And it comes up during wet summer seasons. They emerge and they congregate in rivers, streams, ponds, or Swimming pools, because human neighborhoods are often within the fro- within the toad's range. Um, and this is the call it makes when it's trying to find a mate. That's a pretty sound. I like it. Little little humming sound. So they they seem really innocuous, and yet they excrete a potent toxin from glands behind their eyes and on their legs. So this toxin can be deadly or at the very least make predators very sick. Uh, And, you know, hopefully the predator will release the toad after getting a mouthful of this toxin. Um, But, you know, if they go through with consuming it, they can either get really sick or even die. And this is actually a problem for domesticated dogs who can be very curious about the toad. But in terms of human interactions with this toad, the toxin 
also contains DMT, which might sound familiar to some of you. It is a psychoactive compound. And when smoked, this compound can cause a psychedelic trip with hallucinations, sometimes feelings of euphoria. You know, sometimes it can go very wrong, like uh, psychedelic trips can either be pleasant or be horrifying. It's, uh, I think, somewhat dependent on your frame of mind at the time, your own individual physiology. But yeah, so the, the compound in this toad toxin uh, binds to serotonin receptors and other neurotransmitter receptors, which alters the concentration of neurotransmitters and neural activation. So it very uh, directly interferes with the firing of your neurons and the abundance of neurotransmitters in your brain. And so it is a really interesting thing that, you know, this toxin, which is not created so that we can get high, it's for a totally different reason, can directly bounce around in our brains, make us go into a completely altered state of mind where people see things, they, they feel things very differently how they normally would. Uh, it, it is truly bizarre. And is other things in nature that cause this effect, like, of course, mushrooms, and I think mm -hmm. there's various types of even, like there's like a lichen or a fungus or something else that if you lick it off a rock, you can get you high. Is it all the same thing? Are these all defenses against because other creatures would find that fatal rather than than tripping off of it? Is it generally, have they all evolved for that same reason? I don't know if every single one of them has, but all of the ones that I know of are defensive toxins that have that are there for uh, trying to deter predators that might eat them. Certainly on on toads, yeah, I think that is the case. Uh, and it, I mean, it's kind of funny because even though those are meant to be defensive uh, toxins to prevent predators from eating them, occasionally animals will actually catch on to the fact that this can get them high and they will try to lick the toxin off of the toad. Uh, so this is, I, I don't know all of the animals who do this, but dogs, domesticated dogs and horses have been observed licking these toads. And it's not a great thing. Like Australian uh, dogs, d domesticated dogs in Australia often lick cane toads. And while it isn't necessarily deadly, if they just do a few licks, if they overindulge in the cane toad, they can get really sick and have to go to the vet. Uh, and in South America, horses have been known to lick uh, the waxy tree frog, which is another psychedelic uh, species of frog. And it, uh, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they seemingly just do it because they've learned it gets them high and they, they likes to do it. I find that equally fascinating because I would assume... Like, to what degree a horse can hallucinate? Like, I assume this Absolutely is something that we can. simply that we simply don't know the details of. Like, we can observe their behavior. We can observe that they seem to go into a state or don't seem aware of what they are or whatever. But I would assume from the animal's point of view, it's just a feeling of carefree 
pleasure or whatever, because from an evolutionary point of view, you would think this would be extremely risky to put yourself in a situation where you're now not aware of your surroundings or are seeing things that are not there. Like, even if it's fun, it seems like, especially you know, as nervous as horses are being prey animals, it's very easy for them to harm themselves. Like if I can imagine one hallucinating, you know, a, a wolf or a bird of prey or something else that's frightened of and then running itself to death or whatever. Uh, I, I find that fascinating that they do it anyway. Uh, because again, we know that people do it, but when people do it, you always ascribe some very human reason that we're trying to fight off our anxiety or we're trying to find some deeper meaning in the universe. Uh, but a dog is not doing that. A dog is just, it, it just feels, feels good, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think any, any animal that can perceive the world in some way can hallucinate because hallucination is just the activation of your your perceptive uh, areas of the brain, your your sensory areas of the brain, without there actually being an external stimuli. So, so any animal, I think, with that, with the ability to perceive, has the ability to hallucinate. Uh, we, of course, wouldn't necessarily know what those hallucinations would be like, but uh, I, I, I do think that the dogs and the horses who are doing this are doing it for the euphoria. And animals are not perfect machines, right? Like, uh, including humans, we can't know, like, even though evolution favors us to do things that are in our own best interest in terms of survival, that doesn't mean we're going to do it when they're the reward system that keeps us alive also is activated by things that hurt us. So uh, they, they, like, you know... The this is the uh, serotonin system that is, you know, part of the the impact of the toxin has on uh, serotonin receptors, which is one of the sort of reward systems of the brain. And so, uh, getting that getting that high, getting that reward is so appealing. I mean, y you see that with with human habits, right? Like we do things all the time that are bad for us, but we have such a powerful reward system in the brain. You know, evolution cannot predict all of these sort of, you know, loopholes in terms of things that like, hey, I, I feel good when I eat an apple when I'm hungry. And that's good because that keeps me from keeling over and dying of hunger. Uh, and there's no way as we're evolving for evolution to somehow have kind of a omniscient understanding that like, well, I better make sure that the same system I do when they eat the apple also doesn't activate when they like drink too much wine or eat a bunch of sugar because those things aren't good for them. You know, it's if those reward systems are still activated, we're going to do it, perhaps uh, absent some sort of wisdom that this is harming us uh, because it, it, it feels good. And our brain is completely primed to give in to those reward systems because generally those things have kept us alive for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. You get these paradoxes where things like hot peppers, you know, those are, that is a mechanism to deter certain animals from eating, to deter the wrong animals from eating the, the fruit of these, mm -hmm. of these plants, right? They have the capsaicin or whatever the chemical is that will burn their tongue or, or whatever. And then here we people breed these things and make them into sauces because we have decided that the 
whatever it is, the adrenaline rush of the mild pain on the tongue enhances flavor or the experience somehow. Like the, the pain that this thing is trying to generate, it's like, yes, we have evolved to enjoy that if in a specific amount. But if you could, if you could somehow make a chili pepper sentient and then make it watch that YouTube show where the people eat the wings with the increasingly hot sauces on them, the pepper would probably be very surprised. I mean, the pepper would think we're all perverts because we're all masochistically subjecting ourselves to this pain. Uh, I mean, it is very wrong. It, it is very interesting. I mean, there are other benefits to spicy food. It, it makes you sweat, which can help you cool off in uh, in hot or humid environments. Uh, and it also has some ability to mask the taste of food that's gone off a bit, but you can still eat it or food that's maybe not, you know, great tasting, but then the spiciness makes it taste okay because you're so focused on the spiciness. And it's, you know, people do, you know, I mean, I'm one of them. I, I enjoy spice, not extreme spiciness. I, I can't eat when my eyes are full of tears and there's snot running down my face, but I, I like a good amount of spice and it takes a little while to ramp up to getting some spice, but it's it's like a weirdly, yeah, it's like you you associate it with, you start to associate it with this good flavored food and the spice somehow enhances the flavor of the food or enhances the experience of the food. It's really interesting. So yeah, we, we will uh, subject ourselves even to pain uh, because our reward system is very complex and will activate even when we're doing things that doesn't seem like it's in our best interest. Although spicy food, as long as you don't overindulge, won't hurt you. If you do overindulge, uh, you'll punish yourself and your bathroom. Huge swaths of human behavior falls into this category of things where we are mildly abusing ourselves in some way that provides us some different pleasure. The, the whole complex interaction of that is basically how all of society works. Yep. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about an animal who is surprisingly dangerous. Uh, and also, in the spirit of what we've been talking about, how humans look at that and see opportunity. Hey, guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. All right, so we are back, and we're going to talk about a cute little animal who is kind of surprisingly terrifying. Uh, so platypuses. Platypuses are small, cute little monotremes found in Australia. Uh, I think sometimes people are surprised by the size of them because like at least when I used to think of platypus, I would think of something like that's beaver sized because for some reason I put them in the same category as beaver. Hey, it's an aquatic uh, mammal uh and it swims around and it's got that long, that flat tail. So I thought, you know, it's like beaver size. They're actually quite small. They can fit into your cupped hands. They're much smaller than a beaver. Uh, and they uh, eat earthworms mostly. They lay eggs. They have a bill. Uh, female platypuses will seep milk out of their bellies to feed their young so they don't have nipples. They just have pores on their tummies that basically leak milk. Uh, and so they are this kind of archaic version of mammals. They, they're still mammals, but they are uh, monotremes. Uh, they're related to echidnas as well. Uh, and males have a venomous spur on their heel that can dose you with a potent, very painful toxin. Okay. Before we get into the point of this, which is the fact that males have the toxic spurs, is there honestly no type of platypus that is like big? Because I instantly in my mind am imagining Many, many thousands of photos and videos of these things being like big enough to like sit on your desk and cover most of it. The, the, uh, like a large, not just a beaver, but maybe slightly larger than a beaver. No, I'm no. very eager to hear if there are other listeners who are stunned to find out that platypuses are small. Because I don't know where this started, but this is like a Berenstain Bears thing for me. <laughs> I, I'm now going to go look. And I know for a fact it's going to turn out that you're right. I'm not going to find a single photo of somebody like cradling, cradling this thing in both arms. But man, I'm 
For some reason, I'm really surprised to hear that. Yeah, they don't get that big. Uh, they The things that do get big, it's interesting. Echidnas actually do get large. Like echidnas can get l- much larger than a platypus. Wombats too, those can get quite large. So there are monotremes uh, and marsupials that can get big. And yeah, it, it really is. It's one of those things. For me, I suspect it's because I have placed beaver and pl- like platypus is Australian beaver, essentially. And beavers can get to be quite big. But yeah, platypuses, no, they they, they tend to stay relatively small, um, you know, about a chihuahua size or smaller. Weird. Very weird, right? No, I, I, I get it because I had this misconception as well. And I was surprised to find out that they really don't get that big. But despite being small, they can pack a punch uh, with that venomous spur. So uh, it's thought that this venomous spur was common among archaic mammals uh, and that the platypus inherited it from its ancestors. It is actually found in echidnas, uh, the, the other, this other type of monotreme, but uh, it is a vestigial trait. So, so the spur does not actually contain any venom in the echidna. Uh, so the venom is only found in the male platypus. Uh, the spike is this curved, hollow, keratinous structure. So it's the same material as claws or fingernails. But it is attached to a venom gland uh, that is potent enough to kill a dog. The venom actually doesn't seem to kill other platypuses. Uh, there seems to be some amount of resistance to their own venom, though they can be immobilized by it or paralyzed by it. Uh, so the venom cannot kill a human. Uh, you might be breathing a sigh of relief, but hang on. Uh, it can ruin your day, your week, or possibly many months uh, because it can have an effect that is very painful, lasts a long time, and is resistant to most of our strongest painkillers. Uh, so the pain was first described in scientific literature in 1876 by a naturalist, William Webb Spicer, who wrote of this unnamed victim, quote, the pain was intense and almost paralyzing, but for the administration of small doses of brandy, he would have fainted on the spot as it was. It was half an hour before he could stand without support. By that time, the arm was swollen to the shoulder and quite useless and the pain in the hand very severe. So I mean, medicine was awesome. It's just. <laughs> I've tried every type of liquor on my shelf, and the patient still has not recovered. It appears that this bite is withstands even the finest of whiskey. <laughs> I mean, honestly, so these stings are, the pain is resistant to morphine and other painkillers, modern medical painkillers. So... I don't know. I, I don't know whether brandy wouldn't be better in this situation because morphine does not really seem to work very well against platypus venom, which is kind of horrifying given that the pain can last hours or days 
or weeks, or in a few extreme cases, it's lasted months. So there was a case of a 57-year-old victim whose afflicted hand remained sensitive and in pain for around three months, which, you know, you might think, well, like three months, you know, I could handle that. But just it's your hand. Like imagine it being swollen and in pain uh, just from this little cute duck mammal that you found. And it just, it seemed like it was going to be fine. And it heel kicked you into pain for three months. See, that's the thing, because if you spend time on, say, TikTok, uh, you find out that, especially in the social media era, we people have decided that the whole world is just full of our pets Mm. and potential pets. Like people will approach bison and elk and all of these, because after all, this is nature. These are animals. They are peaceful animals who coexist in nature. So they will go get a selfie or a photo or a video of them petting a bison or a bull or whatever. So something like a platypus, if you were a, an American vacationing in Australia uh, and trying to get some great video and you saw, saw one of these things by somebody of water, oh my God, would you want to pick that thing up and get video of it? Yeah. It's a little duck, duck build, duck build mouse thing. Yeah. So when this thing stings you and then you find out that this is like worse than the average snake bite, apparently, because most snake bites aren't that bad uh, and that you're still having pain weeks later, I think you would be very surprised and disappointed in nature. <laughs> yeah, I have seen this trend on TikTok of people picking up animals and then twirling around with them like they're in that scene from the Titanic. I'm going to go ahead and say, don't do that. Maybe don't do that primarily because that's going to annoy the animal. The animal is not Rose from the Titanic. It does not want to be twirled like a baroness. It wants to be left the heck alone. Uh, Secondary reason is you never know when an animal got a poisonous barb and is going to sting you with it. I'm not going to say that there aren't many animals out there who are secretly poisonous or secretly venomous, just so people will not mess with them as much. Bison, they've got a giant unicorn horn that can envenomate you. Actually, no, they can just gore you, and that's probably good enough. And I am telling everyone in the sound of my voice, all of these creatures can move faster than you think. Yes. There is horrifying video of people who thought it would be fun to approach an alligator or a crocodile because after all they are very slow they kind of float in the water like logs and they would get it's like well i've watched steve Irwin, you know they'll they'll like get on top of it and get a video of it like stroking its back or something and they can bite so fast yep that the camera doesn't capture the motion Mm-hmm. There's a splash and then your hand is gone. Yeah. Because you have to understand these things evolved to be able to bite faster than a deer can react. Mm-hmm. And you're just a person who works in an office. I c- promise you, you do not perceive how fast nature moves and how fast the average predator can bite because they have to bite faster than you can see or they would starve 
they can bite in a fraction of a second. They can complete the motion. You will not get out of the way. I, I think a, a lifetime of watching movies and wild animals and movies where it's a CG animal and the guy's having to fight it or whatever, or jump out of the way. It's like, no, in real life, if it decides to bite you, you're not going to know it until your hand is already gone. Yeah. There's this like famous photo of a human arm in, I believe it was an alligator. It could have been a crocodile, but uh, it had it in its mouth. And it's just like this inert hand in its mouth. I think it was at, it may have been at a zoo or a nature preserve. So I think it was actually the hand of a professional. So if a professional sometimes loses his hand to alligators and crocodiles, uh, most of us don't really have a chance. But, you know, again, human beings, we're endlessly innovative and interested in uh, running towards the danger in case it might improve our lot. Um, the very horrifying venom of the platypus that is resistant to painkillers and can last for weeks or months some people are like, hey, that's great. Let's study it because we might actually discover more about pain management and new ways to relieve pain that doesn't involve opiates or to address pain that doesn't respond well to our current painkillers. So I, I do appreciate that part of the human spirit where we're like, this is horrible and deadly. Uh, maybe it's medicine. And often it is. It's like we, we've done this with stank venom. We've done this with various dangerous compounds where we're like, well, this is horrible and does bad stuff to our blood and our bodies. Maybe that means it, it can be medicine. And that's how we've uh, created things like anticoagulants or procoagulants that can help people. Uh, because we're we're um, masochists who enjoy the thrill of subjecting ourselves to weird and terrifying stuff. Or maybe it could be a weapon. If you're looking for, you know, some sort of a chemical weapon that could not be treated by painkillers, it's like, hey, the platypuses have mastered this. Let's learn their ways. I like the idea of having our armies just be little platypuses. Uh, that would be adorable. Ador most adorable war crime would be torturing someone with a platypus. Just dropping them out of planes. <laughs> Little tiny parachutes. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about an animal who um, actually does have a medical use uh, and sometimes creates a medical marvel that is very rare and very weird. So we will be right back. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. 
We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So Jason, you actually brought this up to me, which I found really interesting. I was skeptical, and then I looked into it, and it is actually true. It is a snake bite that has been known to cause so-called reverse puberty to uh, the rare Uh, unlucky victim. So this is courtesy of the Russell's Vipers. So Russell's Vipers are found in and near India. It is a large brown snake about four feet long, so over a meter, uh, with brown oval patterns. Uh, It is... I'm not going to say it looks like a rattlesnake because it's missing the rattle and rattlesnakes are much bumpier, but the patterns on its skin are somewhat similar. Uh, this is exactly the kind of snake to be wary of. I do love to talk about snakes on the podcast that you do not need to be so scared of and that we should love and appreciate. This is one you should be scared of. Uh, and while we can love and appreciate it, we got to do it from afar because it is venomous and they like to hang out near human areas. Uh, They do this because when there's human activity, there is rodent activity. The rodents like to eat our food and our waste and the snakes like to eat the rodents. And so these snakes will be found around people and their venom is very potent and it can hurt and kill people and it has. So without treatment, Their venom can be very deadly to humans and cause problems such as bleeding from the gums, blood in the urine, blistering and necrosis. That means the death of the tissue near the bite can cause facial swelling, vomiting, kidney failure, blood clots, blood poisoning and heart failure. Uh, Pain can last for weeks following the bite. Um, Like uh, a lot of snake venom, Uh, it can interfere with clotting, blood clotting. So the venom can cause both blood clotting and bleeding. So destruction of the blood vessels 
and uh, the uh, increase in blood clot formation, which is a kind of weird and horrible combination, but it's so good at inducing blood clots, which can cause problems in vivo in the human body, but in vitro, it is used in medical laboratory settings to test the clotting ability of blood. So this is really useful actually to look for the presence of something called lupus anticoagulant. So if the blood clots in the standard amount of time when uh, given a little drop of this snake venom, uh, it means that this lupus anticoagulant is not present. But if it takes longer, uh, it indicates the presence of this lupus anticoagulant that interferes with the development of clots. Um, I could get into a whole explanation about what lupus anticoagulant is because it's actually a procoagulant in the body and it's confusing, but that seems like a topic for a medical podcast, not this one. But the point is that this snake venom is actually an important and useful medical diagnostic tool. Um, and Maybe today it is, but the reason I wanted to talk about this one is because I have this belief that I think most cultures, most human cultures have specific beliefs about snakes and that they are, you know, because obviously in, you know, in our culture, we have the snake in the Bible and whenever it refers to serpents, they're very apocalyptic or devious. I think the idea that snakes are cursed in some way comes to the fact that it, when, when they get a bite, it's not just that it swells up and hurts. You get effects that are weird. Like you look at the list of, you know, blood in the urine, bleeding from the gums. It would have to seem like a curse. Like you had been, if you were an ancient people, it would not seem like you were bit by an animal, but that this animal has cursed you with a whole range of ailments that don't seem to have anything to do with the bite. Yeah, that's what's like, spooky about snake venom is that it has such a wide range of effects like uh, over the whole body and it, it creates these like hellish symptoms in people that are scary to look at even your more face scary swells to up is one of them What's like that? your 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 face swells yeah. up was one of the the symptoms so it's uncontrollable vomiting and your face is swelling and there's blood in your urine like you would just have to feel like this is a plague you've been attacked with yeah, it's horrible, horrible, horrible. It's, I mean, you know, it's so important that we have antivenom because antivenom treatment can uh, prevent or help reduce symptoms and it can save your life. Uh, an answer to your, you, you wanted to know if we still use the snake venom uh, in diagnostic tests. And yes, we do. It's called diluted Russell Viper Venom Time, uh, DRVVT. Uh, which is a very popular test used in labs uh, for uh, trying to find this lupus anticoagulant. So uh, as as far as I know, uh, this test is still used. Uh, it, it, it sounds like archaic, but if it works, it works. I mean, once you have a compound that can induce coagulation in blood, uh, you can that is very useful for testing whether the blood is able to coagulate at all. Uh, another, interesting medical phenomenon with this snake is the so-called reverse puberty that it can cause. So reverse puberty doesn't really mean you turn back into a teenager and go full Benjamin Buttons, 
But it does mean that sexually mature characteristics can be either interfered with or revert. Uh, so medically speaking, this is a case of hypopituitarism. So that means that the pituitary gland is not as active as it should be or is not at all active. So the pituitary gland is responsible for producing hormones that they regulate a lot of bodily processes, but that includes things associated with puberty and post-puberty. So the way this snake uh, messes with your sexual characteristics is that uh, the Russell's viper venom can cause bleeding or clotting in the pituitary gland, which damages it and disrupts its function. And this can cause, uh, in rare cases, and in the rare cases that this happens, this can cause pubic or armpit hair loss. It can interfere with the menstrual cycle, either stopping it or causing irregularity. It can decrease libido and cause erectile and sexual dysfunction. So yeah, very much like a witch's curse, this <laughs> venom. It's so bad because it's actively damaging the tissue of the pituitary gland in these cases. And so, in, you know, in these rare cases that this happens, people sometimes have to go on hormone treatment for life because uh, the pituitary gland can no longer function. It can't heal. And so they have to receive hormone treatments for the rest of their life to treat these issues and to uh, keep their body functioning normally. And it seems to, to an ancient people or even just in a part of the world where they don't have great modern education, it's so different from, you know, if you get bitten by a, a lion or an alligator, it bites you, it has chewed off a part of your arm, it's trying to eat you. That's extremely clear what's happening there. The idea of getting bit by a snake and then over the course of months, your whole body changes in ways that seems to be reverting you to youth or whatever, like certain hair falls out and your sexual performance changes or all of these various effects that are just hormonal. If you don't know the mechanism of that, you would have to think like you would have to go looking for the snake to find out how to appease it or something to reverse the curse. You, you would have to regard it as, as some sort of a magical thing. I would think it just, it feels mystical. It doesn't feel like something an animal should be able to do to you with a bite. I mean, it's so funny too, because the snake has no interest in causing us harm like this. It really, it really could not care less about whether our pubic hair falls off. That venom is mostly for its prey. So it, it, it uses that venom to uh, shock and paralyze and kill its prey. And uh, that is its preferred usage for it. In fact, there are a lot of snakes that are venomous, but when they bite you, they actually do what's called a dry bite because they don't want to waste their venom on you because they would much prefer to use it on their prey. But if they feel very threatened, they will... Or if they mistake you for prey, like they're happy enough to use their venom uh, to protect themselves. And it is, it's just weird and kind of unfortunate that it has such a profound effect on us and has such like 
truly like you have been cursed. Uh, and it, I definitely can see why snakes are involved in a lot of sort of folklore and mysticism because it is, it is such, a, such a potent natural toxin that they have. Before we go, we do got to play a little game called the Mystery Animal Sound Game. Uh, every week I play a mystery animal sound and you, the listener, and you, the guest, try to guess who is making that sound. Uh, it can be any animal. So last week's mystery animal sound, the hint was this. This raptor is all about no-shave November. All right, could you hear that thing that sounded like a broken squeaky toy? You've already, in the hint, told us that it's a raptor, right? That's right. Like it's a type of bird of prey. That's right. And you made a reference to to no shave November. Mm -hmm. Let me try to visualize it and try to think of what are the mustache related birds that I know because there are so many. I'm going to say that is the sound of a Siberian mustache gull. <laughs> I love it. Sounds like it could be a real bird. Uh, however, this is the bearded vulture. Congratulations to the Western Australian Insect Study Society, Auntie B and Saga E, for guessing correctly. So you're close with that Siberian mustached gull, uh, which I don't believe is a real bird. But maybe if we, you know, keep our minds open, we will discover such a bird. Certainly there is are. Is any more ridiculous than the thing you just said? <laughs> There are, you can't come up with a bird that doesn't at least have a counterpart in real life that is just as, if not more, ridiculous. So, yes, this is the bearded vulture. It is found in southern Europe. Actually, it's kind of near me. It's in Grand Paradiso National Park. I have gone out so many times trying to see this bird. Never once, never once have I seen one. Uh, someday, hopefully. It's also found in East Africa, India, and the surrounding area, as well as Tibet. So they are a very large raptor that is a bird of prey. They have a wingspan that can get up to over nine feet. So that's nearly three meters of wingspan. That is... Jesus. A, yep. It's a big, big, big old bird. They are a wonderfully spooky Halloweeny bird because their diet is almost entirely bones. That sounds very cool, but I am telling you, every single listener who is imagining in their head this bearded vulture is picturing the wrong thing. There is almost no way it has the thick, luxurious beard that all of us want it to have. And I'm worried that if I go look up a picture of it right now, I'm going to be extremely disappointed. I don't think you will be. Uh, because it is a beautiful bird. Uh, so so look it up. The reason it's called bearded is because rather than being bald, like most vultures, it has full, full head of hair, full head of feathers, and around its neck, 
and chest, it has these beautiful scruffy feathers that uh, it, it looks fantastic. And these feathers often have this beautiful kind of pink reddish hue, which I'll, I'll talk about why that happens a little bit. But Jason, have you looked up a photo and are you disappointed? I have, and I'm not trying to contradict you, but I don't think it's called bearded because of the red feathers on its throat. It seems to have a little black goatee style beard dangling down from the base of its beak. Hmm. That could be. It does have a it little. It straight up seems to have a very bad beard. But again, <laughs> I. It does have a l weird little sideburns. Like, like, oh, I guess. Okay, I see. Yeah, they're like front from the side. Burns. I can see someone thinking that it's that that's its little beard. Ah, though, that it's got a little that's... goatee. Yeah, that actually might be why. You might be right. Um, yes, it has it has that little weird goatee, and then a pink, these pinkish red, scruffy neck feathers, and then sort of black and white feathers on the rest of it. It's truly an amazing looking bird. I think it's beautiful, actually. It is. Uh, the problem is, is that the beard is the least impressive part. It, it, the beard looks like it's kind of been dyed black, like a divorced dad who grew out like a goatee and doesn't know, you know, he's like trying to start a band or something. And he's like in his forties and he's like got a dyed black goatee. Like it's, it's the least impressive feature of the animal. And I think it's kind of sad that they named it the bearded vulture. Like they're, they're calling out this one feature because that is the least impressive thing about it. Should be called the soul patch vulture, but nevertheless, uh, they eat bones, which is pretty metal. I love it. Uh, and it's not just the bone marrow. They eat the entire bone. They can digest the whole bone. Over 90% of their diet is just bones. Their powerful digestive juices dissolves the bone. Uh, they do need to break apart the bone into chunks that are small enough that it can swallow whole. So they either snap apart brittle bones on the ground or for the more stubborn bones, they can pick them up and fly and drop them from a height and then it shatters on the ground and they pick up the little pieces and swallow those whole. Uh, so even though they look like they would attack you and try to rip out your liver, they, the most you have to fear from them is them accidentally dropping a bone on your head, which is pretty unlikely because their populations are not that, not that big and their populations have declined, which is sad. Another cool thing about these guys is despite being spooky, bone-eating, uh, soul-patched gods, they also love makeup. So that beautiful kind of reddish, orangey, pinky hue on their chest feathers uh, is actually makeup that they have applied. It is rusty, iron-rich dirt and mud that they have intentionally rubbed themselves with. Uh, and while it's not 100% known why they do this, the thought is that it makes them more sexually attractive. So it, both the males and females do this. So gender equity, hooray. Uh, and they probably do it to appear more mature and more attractive to mates and they might also do it to make themselves look more impressive to their peers regardless of whether they want to mate so that they know like this is a fit healthy 
beautiful makeup wearing bearded vulture and I probably shouldn't try to mess with them or invade their territory. So, you know, it is it's one of those things where like anyone who wears makeup might feel the same way where you do it sometimes because you want to be attractive to uh, people you are sexually interested in. And sometimes you do it because you just want to look impressive and send a message about yourself or just because you like how you look in the mirror. See, it looks to me. And again, I am pulling a fact straight out of my butt. It looks like that it spreads the red dirt around its face to look like blood as if as in I just got finished eating some big bloody animal. Don't mess with me. You'd think that, but the thing is, these guys don't get too much gore on themselves, given that they eat bones. Uh, they, you know, that's not what they actually do. I'm saying that maybe just it's like a, it's 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 a, an affectation they see. They saw like polar bears. They get the, like the blood all over <laughs> their fur, and it looks so bad. At, like, yeah, yeah. Or it could be it could look like barbecue sauce. Barbecue sauce. I, I think it's the barbecue sauce because, like, if you know someone's got a good sauce on, like that they have a, a barbecue sauce that's so good that they don't feel self conscious about it dribbling everywhere, that's the barbecue I want to go to. You want to hang out with that guy. Right. You want and to know can more you, about him. Can you imagine being someone who can eat bones whole and be at a barbecue? It's like you've got even more ribs to enjoy. All right, so on to this week's mystery animal sound. The hint is this. This ferocious wild carnivore would eat you if only it didn't fit inside your pocket. All right, did you hear that little sound? So that sounded to me like a little uh, kitten meowing, but, but... Because I know how this show runs and that it is a labyrinth of lies uh, <laughs> that is probably trying to throw me off. So I'm going to say that is a, he said it's a predator that can fit in your pocket. So I'm going to say that is a South American micro gator, <laughs> the brand of tiny little four inch long alligators that live down there. Oh man, I wish. Oh, I would love that. I would I would break my own rule of one shouldn't keep exotic pets if there were micro gators that would stay tiny forever. Ugh, so cute. They're they're chubby. They're almost round, and they can barely walk. They have, they have little stumpy legs. Aw, so cute. Ah, um, but yes, that is a great guess. Uh, we will find out next time on Creature Feature what this little mystery mewling sound is uh if you think you know you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com you can also write to me with questions every so often i have a whole episode dedicated to answering your questions and i also respond to your questions via email jason thank you so much for joining me you got anything to promote slash where can people find you a new book is out on October 31st, 2023. If you are listening to this in the future, it's already out. It is called Zoe is Too Drunk for This Dystopia, part of the Zoe Ash series, available in every possible format. If you want to follow me on TikTok, I am Jason K. Pargin, P-A-R-G-I-N, 
on TikTok, but I'm also that on Twitter and Threads and Blue Sky and Instagram and YouTube and several others. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you leave a rating or review, I I am just so grateful because they help and I read all the reviews and I appreciate all that feedback. Uh, it's so good. It feeds me. It nourishes me. Uh, and thanks to the Space Caustics for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the ones you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows, I don't care. I'm not your mother. See you next Wednesday. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.